We're very lucky to have Imad Mustak, who is the founder and CEO of Stability AI. I moved to England and I worked on my British accent, and now it's wonderful. I'm very proud of it. What made you come to the decision to be like, okay, we're going to actually open sources and put this out there? The reality is the bad guys have thousands and thousands of supercomputers to influence elections. Our system is designed for the mass, not for the individual. You get what you get and you don't get upset. She said that the other day. Like, what? People are interested if you're interested and you take the time to really understand them. I know, a startup found I've been busy, okay? By the end of 2022, 2023, we're going to have some massive breakthroughs if this continues. How do you see India's role in AI? You feel so cheated. We were, we were not <laughs> impressive enough over I know. there, apparently. I, I feel yes. robbed. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Srira. And I'm Aarti. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, what we try and do here is we've been very fortunate to have been outsiders who grew up uh, in India and then were very lucky to have careers in the world of technology and venture capital and kind of like really made it over here. And we try and find people to have conversations with that have also made it and are inspiring, are doing really interesting work, are trying to have a positive impact in the world uh, through many number of means. And, and today, uh, we have a guest who checks all those boxes uh, and then some more. Uh, we're very lucky to have uh, Imad uh, Mustak, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Stability AI. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably seen and heard uh, a lot about uh, Imad and his work, uh, you know, and just kind of like all the buzz it has created and all the images it has done. And yeah, it, we are really excited. So Imad, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's my pleasure, Sri Amarasti. I think it's, uh, thank you so much for having me on. So we're going to get deep into AI and uh, uh, stable diffusion and LLMs and the future. But before that, you are a really fascinating character uh, in just in terms of your backstory. So could you tell us a little bit about where you were born and how you just kind of came to be where you are right now? Um, so I was born in uh, Jordan, in uh, Irbid, which is a bit of a random place. My parents were from Bangladesh and my father was lecturing there. And then I grew up in Bangladesh and I moved to England and I worked in my British accent. And now it's wonderful. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> you um, can say whatever you want. You will sound really smart. Exactly. I mean, this is how I got my American wife. I was like, my darling, you're going to marry me. She was like, yes. <laughs> she was like, um, <laughs> we went a long way. So, um, yeah, then I was lucky. I kind of went to a very good school, uh, did mathematics, computer science at university. And I was a movie reviewer, actually, for my first job. So I helped organize the British Independent Film Awards and Rain Dance Film Festival. So that was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, what I noticed is that people like talking to you if you're interested. So, like, in my second year of uni, I was actually a venture capitalist or Oxford Capital Partners doing high-tech spin-outs. And I emailed people like um, David Swenson and others. And I peppered them in questions and they spent hours talking to me. And uh, that I think is one of the things I realized is a real superpower early. People are interested if you're interested and you take the time to really understand them. So like um, I have Asperger's and ADHD. So I think one usually balances out the other, but I really like getting deep into kind of things. Um, so I did that and then I came out and I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? I was a strategy consultant for a year and I was terrible because I kept telling people what was wrong with their business models. You don't do that. And I was like, oh, what else can I do where people won't judge me? I'll become a hedge fund manager. So I joined a big Swiss private bank for Pictet. Um, and then very early on, I was lucky enough to uh, become a portfolio manager 
massive video game investor, which was great because it's all I knew about, like how you play video games. And I did very well. Um, I did that for a number of years and then took a break when my son was diagnosed with autism. And uh, it's very interesting because when you're a high flying, smart young guy and everything's going well for you and something like that happens, they're like, there is no cure and there is nothing that can be done about it. But like, no, I'm an engineer. First principles, like to so start breaking it down. Um, and it's very interesting because one of the things you see in finance, and I saw it through my head trunk here, is it's all about like statistics, right? And numbers. But the world is not normally distributed. And people are not normally distributed. People are unique. But because we have such low information systems, it treats everyone like they're a Gerdic on a distribution. So it's like a thousand tosses of a coin is the same as a thousand coins at once toss. And their people are unique. And one of the things about autism, and so we used artificial intelligence to do a literature review of all the autism literature, biomolecular pathway analysis of neurotransmitters. It was like a cold, like it exhibits in the same way. And the way that it exhibited was um, similar to a GABA glutamate imbalance. So in your brain, you have GABA, which calms you down, you know, pop a Valium, it goes up, and then glutamate, which makes you excited. And you know when you're like nervous and you're tapping your toes? That's because your brain's not filtering because there's an imbalance there. And that's how people with autism, ASD, uh, Asperger's feel all the time. So they can't bring the connectivity and figure out the hidden spaces of meaning between the various layers of um, things. So you can do things like potentiate the GABA, reduce the glutamate so they can start filtering better. And then you use things like applied behavioral analysis, which is like video games, <laughs> things like Red Bull War, where like, uh, you know, if you're running around a track and you've got uh, a reward at the start and a reward at the end, in the middle, you're like flagging. But if you get a random reward, it's much better. It's like when you're doing Starbucks tanks, they should give you one every six times on average. Actually, little story. There's a uh, Indian restaurant called Dishoom in London. We are, we are huge, huge fans of Dishoom. Huge fans. Are you a loyal a loyalty member of Dishoom there? We have the book. No, but we have the book. I, no, we're not a loyalty Wait, member. That, I I, know, I, yes, they I do. But we are not a loyalty member. My, my yes. stomach tells me that I'm a loyalty member in spirit. So they have a special loyalty scheme for people such as me who eat too many of those like lovely egg non paratas, right? Uh, breakfast. So what does what does it mean to be too many? Like, what is it like a certain number no of times? They, the... When you go there and they like you enough, at the end of your meal, they bring you out a little um, bag with a scroll inside it. And there's a keychain. And it says, he whoever presents this keychain at the end of the meal shall receive a dice. And so what happens is... I feel is, so cheated. We were, we were not impressive enough over I know. there, apparently. I, I feel it's, robbed. Uh, there we go. At the end of the meal, they bring you, um, if you show the keychain, it's in the Dishoom symbol. So Dishoom is this Parsi Indian restaurant for the listeners. Um, they bring you this board and a silver cup and a dice. If you roll a six, your meal is free. <laughs> and so that's an example of a reward. That's so much more fun than six stamps and you get a free something because it's for everyone at your table, right? Well, this is the example of a reward. So the two things with autism is kind of, one is repurposing of drugs. So repurpose drugs to potentiate the GABA and glutamate to calm him down so he could kind of concentrate um, with medical advice and things. Although, of course, that was a lot of fun because uh, the same drug can cause or the same thing can cause 30% of kids with autism to get better and 29% to get, to get worse. So statistically, it doesn't work because you need to have a first principles thinking approach to that. So the other part is using things like applied behavioral analysis. We have this variable reward schedule like Dishoom, where you randomly get rewarded for learning that a cup means this and a cup can mean that and a cup can mean that. And funnily enough, that's like in video games. 
And that rebuilding of meaning, because you can finally stop and think, is the same way that modern transformer technology works with self-attention. So these all kind of intersect. Which I want to really get to, we're going to really dig deep in transformers. Now, you said something interesting, and we discussed this when we met earlier too. What do you mean when you said you use AI to crunch through research on autism and Asperger's? So basically, like, again, the literature assumes that people are like normally distributed and the toss of the coins are the same, but there are different things that cause it. So in some people it's GABA potentiation, oxidization, deoxidization, and things like that. So what I did was analysis to find out all the various compounds that were recommended, the various neurotransmitter pathways. So kind of literature review at scale using semantic search. Um, so obviously back then, this was what, uh, 12 years ago, the tools weren't as good as we have now. So there was a lot of kind of manual work and manual data structuring of the papers, you know, paid many thousands and thousands to get them out of paywalls and things. But it was super interesting seeing that stuff emerge. And in fact, it applied to my COVID work later on. Um, and then, you know, you see these things, you're like, you start to see the patterns of this first principle based analysis to medicine. Like a good percentage of the population has a cytochrome P450 abnormality or mutation, you know? Uh, I think, I can't remember, it's like 4 or 5%, which means that your liver metabolizes quicker. So if you take codeine, it turns into morphine really quickly or fentanyl goes even quicker. But no one actually bothers to test that before they prescribe you drugs. So you have addiction epidemics and things like that. Like, again, our system is designed for the mass, not for the individual. And that's because it doesn't have the visualization thing. So we had to do a very personalized treatment for him, obviously an N of one, you know? And uh, this is why things like ASD and then later on COVID-19, Alzheimer's and others sometimes have a bit of problem figuring out what to do. Something that works for one person cannot work for another person because the human body is a complex adaptive system. You know, it seemed to have worked for him. He's very happy now, which is kind of amazing. It was the best point I made. And um, I advised some governments and some hedge funds in the period. And then eventually my wife told him to get the house and get a proper job again. So I went back to running a hedge fund and that was cool, won an award and then decided to make the world a better place. Um, yeah. And so that was quite a change. You know, you go from trading and hedge funding and research to how am I going to do this? Um, so I worked on smartphones for refugees, worked with my co-founder Joe to take the Global X Prize for Learning and um, deploy that around the world. So the Global Enterprise for Learning was a $15 million prize from Elon Musk and Tony Robbins and others for the first application that could teach literacy and numeracy in 18 months, was it 15 months without internet. So we've been deploying that in refugee camps around the world from the Rohingya camps to Malawi to Kenya. And we're currently teaching literacy and numeracy in 13 months for 76% of kids in one hour a day, which is kind of insane. Like my kids at private school in freaking Kensington don't learn that fast, you know? So one thing I think I find very interesting about you is uh, before we get to you know what you're working on now is you've been very vocal about your religious uh, you know upbringing and how deep you kind of gone into theology. Uh, could you talk about that because I think that's kind of fascinating and it's not usually something you see in sort of the median tech CEO. Yeah, so I mean I think you know I grew up as a Muslim and I was lucky enough to study Islamic law and kind of other things. Um, I was fascinated by comparative religion. Um, in 2017, we had a project called Ananas that was doing decentralized religion uh, by taking AI to it all. So my sister-in-law, Zina, ran that and it got to 40 people and then it had some uh, smart contract issues, which I don't want to get too in-depth into, but it bounced back kind of money from the funders. Um, she's now done well. She's got her AI uh, company, Synantic, which did artificial intelligent voices that just sold to Spotify. So she did Val Kilmer's voice for Top Gun and video game voices and other things. So AI in the 
that up. That's amazing. Cool. Yeah, so yeah, it runs in the family. What can you say? Uh, so, uh, you know, so look, I mean, religion fascinates me because it's kind of the stories that have survived, right? And humans are driven by stories. So, like, uh, you know, semantics is something that's always fascinated me. And information theory, informationally, you know, the Claude Cannon style is. Information is valuable in as much as it changes the state. So stories are only interesting in as much as they change the state. Most of it is noise. What is the signal? And religion is the stories that people use to kind of guide their lives, and it's integrated. So even though we live in the secular tech world in a way, the reality is the vast majority of people in the world are religious. Does that mean they're bigoted or stupid or things? No, it's just they have a code and a structure that they operate around. And this is one of the things you find interesting because a lot of the discussions around like everything from Web3 to AI ethics and things like that, don't actually have a defined moral framework or structural framework because A, they're quite new and people think you have to kind of do it from first principles when in fact they affect real people and real people have their own principles. Like if you apply a lot of the discussions and arguments to a libertarian who's a true, like, let's say ultra-Orthodox open source believer, a lot of these AI discussions, ethics discussions are moot. And then you have to be like, what are my priors? So a lot of the time we don't understand each other's priors and that's what causes the ascension in the world. We denigrate each other's priors when maybe we shouldn't. Like, obviously, some people you can say I'm wrong, but it's when we start to impose things on others that a lot of the harm in this world comes. Because most people who do harm and ill, they're not doing it because they're evil. They believe they're doing good according to their things and their priors. So the question is, how can you start to dismantle those so you can communicate better? And that's what, again, really interested me about faith and understanding because. We have the technology now to be able to show Islam from the perspective of Judaism or libertarianism from the perspective of Tea Party conservatism, but only if we actually map the stories of humanity. And so narrative artificial intelligence was always interesting to me. And that was, again, what we used for my son's analysis, the literature review, what I used in the hedge fund to a degree as well, um, to see how coherent stories are and how they shift. And again, what's that little bit of a story that changes something like, you know, from the Tesla stock price going from high to low, like what starts breaking down or vice versa? or what changes your mind about something. That's super interesting. Okay, so um, I want to get to kind of the uh, thing which I think a lot of people are going to look for. So could you explain maybe, you know, the history of uh, and what led to stable diffusion and stability AI? Yeah, so um, in 2020, I kind of left the refugee smartphones and the um, tablets for the education to focus on COVID-19 because I was at a dinner at Davos with some very senior people, you know, again, we're very lucky. We get to have these discussions and talks and they're talking about this virus out of China, as it were. And COVID-19 is a multi-systemic inflammatory condition, in my opinion, um, which was very similar to autism, which has this various inflammation markers. And I was like, there's no way modern science will understand this immediately. It will take a while. We'll get vaccines and things, but ultimately everyone's going to try and do the same thing bottom up. We lack a global coordination mechanism for this. So there was kind of the Ford 19 initiative to make all the code research in the world free, pushing that forward. And then I said, how can we create a system that is authoritative, comprehensive, and up-to-date to enable um, kind of us to have learnings that are shared amongst people? Because this is one of the key things. How do you have effective communities and discussions? And again, that information that changes the state, that is important. Uh, Google did an analysis called Project Aristotle, because everyone in Google smart, right? Come on. How are some teams more effective than others? It's a complex one, but it came down to two things. Shared narrative and psychological safety. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we managed in COVID was because people had a shared narrative. We were pulling in the same direction. It affects us all. 
And there was a level of psychological safety, but at the same time, there wasn't. You know, like, for example, COVID coming out of the Wuhan wet labs. I mean, obviously, you know, if they're a coronavirus wet lab, it was fine, but you weren't allowed to say things like that. So at Stanford in July of 2022, we launched an international coalition. I was lead architect called Kayak, Collective and Augmented Intelligence Against COVID-19. I got the WHO, World Bank, UNESCO, and others to back it, along with private sector enterprise to say, let's take all that knowledge and let's make it comprehensive, authoritative, and up-to-date using various types of artificial intelligence and expert interviews. So stuff like this online. And uh, I was like, oh, this is working quite well. All that bureaucracy isn't going to get in the way. Oh my God, it did. Uh, and then all the private sector companies will tumble through. Oh my God, they didn't. So in the end, like the funding was delayed and then private sector reneged. <clears throat> I'm not going to name any names yet. I will. Um, and so I looked at the vision of the future and I was like, this powerful technology that we asked for isn't coming through. What does it look like for my kids? You know, your kids, like web two was dominated by attention grabbing artificial intelligence and that extracted most of the value from that. This technology understands like the reflections of human desire and meaning and things like that, because it's based on that. And we can talk about that later. It can push those information bits to do, make you do anything you want. Do I want them controlled by large private corporations? Or is it like Promethean fire from the gods that can be used in various ways and we have to give it to everyone? So I said, let's do that. So I was part of the second wave at Luther AI and they did fantastic work. And, you know, we had open source GPT-3 that's been downloaded, GPT-Neo downloaded 25 million times. Um, Eleuther's gone in two directions. One is alignment with conjecture to make sure that AI doesn't kill us all, which would be nice. And the other one is kind of capabilities, which is stability, um, to take the language models and other things and make them available to everyone. But last year is when I really got into it because my daughter came up to me and she said, Daddy, you know that thing you did with all the COVID knowledge and compressing it and trying to present it to policymakers who might not be so smart because their brains have been sucked out by bureaucracy. I was like, yes, daughter, uh, can you do that for art? And um, OpenAI had open source. He's seven years old. Incredibly astute and smart for a seven-year-old. That's amazing. This private school fees mean something, you know? Like, uh, she's not eight going on 18. Like, you know, she's like, she has phrases like, you get what you get and you don't get upset when I ask her why she doesn't give me hugs anymore. God, our daughter says that she's three and a half. It's uh, crazy. Oh. They're smart, these young kids now, right? Like. Yes. I know. It's, yeah. it's annoying. It's kind of like, oh my God. You get what you get and you don't get upset. She said that the oh. other day. Like, what? <laughs> it's mimetic theory going around the world. No, right? it is. So putting us in our place. So she said that. My daughter, who's three years old, said, uh, we are all alone together. And I have no idea whether it's a nonsensical sentence or something deeply profound or something in the middle. But you're like, how did this even pop with she you? runs around the room thinking, we're all alone, but together. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, Got a little Buddha that you're raising, you know? You have to record the koans right now. You know? I think the brains just become mush because of COVID and yeah. not meeting people. <laughs> so your daughter challenges you or not? She challenges me. And then I have a look and I'm just recovering from long COVID at that point. And there was clip from um, OpenAI that they open sourced, you know? Because OpenAI, just as an aside, OpenAI do fantastic work and there are a couple of hundred people who the weight of the world's been put on the shoulders of. So I know people say various things about them, but I'd like to thank them for all the work, like clip that they put out there. Because um, again, we're compared to them a lot and we can discuss that later. But they put out clip. What does clip do? Clip was a model that basically took images and wrote descriptions about the images. And then previously we had generated images that took words and generated images out of those. And so what happened is that 
Um, a bunch of us, kind of Ryan Murdoch, Catherine Krausen, and others, were creating collab notebooks. I created a system for my daughter because I thought, you know, let's build it just like you'd build a snowman or Lego. Let's build an artificial intelligence system. Um, and so what she did was she made faced a vision board of what she wanted to make and then description of what she wanted to create. And those two were kind of tokenized and merged, put through this system of a generator and a classifier that bounced back and forth with each other to make it simple. And it generated 16 different images. And then she went through and she said, this differs from what I want for each single one. And then generated 16 more and 16 more. And so it got to a picture um, called Mubarak that was quite lovely. And then she was like, I like this. Uh, at the time, India was suffering from COVID and, you know, a lot of her classmates and things like that. So she's like, dad, can we like raise some money for charity? I said, let's give it a go. And so we ended up selling that as an NFT for three and a half thousand dollars. And she donated it all to India COVID relief. I thought that was amazing. You know? Around eight years old. Yeah. So, you know, I think she's the best eight-year-old artist in the world, really. You know? But, Definitely uh, could be. Uh, That's awesome. We should link to her NFT in this show. Um, and yeah. how, when did the thing, what is now Stability AI and Stable Diffusion, like, you know, what, how did you get sucked into that? So this was the germination of it because I was like, wow, my seven-year-old daughter just created this amazing thing. Uh, for myself, I've got aphantasia, so I can't visualize anything in my head. I can only feel things. And I was 38 years old before I figured that out last year. No, last year. And I heard about this. I was like, oh, wow. Now, people are actually meaning that like an analogy. It was actually real. So at the same time I realized that, I was like, now I can visualize things using this technology. So let's support it. So I supported many of the researchers in this space, um, the kind of various uh, applications that were launched through a variety of grants and, you know, like giving people jobs with no, like they could release everything open source or just whatever I could. So the notebooks, the models, et cetera, they all kind of came from my little coterie of people that I was supporting because it was amazing. There was no business model. There was nothing about that. And there was no drive. But then at the turn of the year, I realized, holy crap this can actually be something. So that was the pace of change and the breakthroughs in merging different types of AI models together. And I was like, by the end of 2022, 2023, we're going to have some massive breakthroughs if this continues and it will be a game changer for the world. So then I came up with a business model that was commercial open source software on steroids, as I like to call it, scale and service. Um, and I gathered together a group of developers and I said, let's do this kind of, you know, Manhattan prototype. What do you need? Supercompute. Let's get a supercomputer. What else do you need? Like best benefits. Let's kind of get that. What else do you need? You not to annoy us. Okay, I'm backing off. I'm not going to code anymore. You know, those types of things. And um, it came together. So we had about like 20 top developers building and experimenting with various things. And the key thing was to tell them it's okay if it doesn't work out, you know, and to see how to make them happy. Because a happy dev is a good dev. A sad dev is a good dev. And too many people are sad. Um, and the community came in and helped, and there was this explosion of creativity around the collab notebooks and other things as the models got better and better. You know, we gave grants to people like Midjourney that were taking this and kind of taking it forward to get them going and really tried to stimulate the space. Then there were these AI artists that were selling for millions and millions of dollars, you know, and some of them came in and funded some of this research alongside me and things like that. And it just evolved and grew and people were excited and there was energy around it as the supercomputer continued to build. Until all of a sudden, like in June, we were like, oh, wait, wow, what did we just manage to achieve? <laughs> like this model has gone insane. Even at the same time as our other groups are training different models and different modalities like language and protein folding, but we can discuss that later. 
we realized this was the breakthrough model. Stable Diffusion is a two gigabyte file that is based on 100,000 gigabytes of da image data and label sets. You know, we also funded the creation of the Lion data sets to enable that because it's data sets, supercomputers, and genius brains that are required. Those are the three parts of this recipe, right? And that's ridiculous because it can recreate the style or the general nature of any of those images from a two gigabyte file that can run on the MacBook M1 and generate an image in 15 seconds. So we're like, this is a big deal. And we have to release this to the world, but we have to do so responsibly because it's Promethean Fire. Again, it's super powerful technology that change a lot of things, you know? Maybe, you know, I want to kind of nerd out a little bit here. Uh, you know, for maybe those of uh, the listeners who are maybe somewhat into computer science, but not deep into LLMs or AI, uh, could you explain how stable diffusion work? Maybe starting with what is a transformer? What are attention mechanisms? Um, in quasi-layman's terms. Yeah, so I think the best way to kind of describe this is when you look at data, you don't look at it all at the same way, right? Certain parts are more commercializing and the kind of information theory perspective. And so with the kind of breakthroughs that we saw in Transformers in, what was it, 2017? Was that kind and, of... And so for folks, Transformers, you know, came from a paper famously published by a bunch of people at Google called Attention is All You Need. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think in some ways it's kind of taken the world of uh, AI by storm for the last few years. Yeah. So before that, what you had was kind of giant inference elements where you took a large amount of big data and then you figured out how to target Sri Rama Arthi with ads or similar. Like it's all about big data. That became about structured data. And this is similar to how the human brain learns, you know? Like when my son was reconstructing his concepts of the world and what a cup meant and things like that. It's labeled data. Now Meta and others have got non-labeled data with self-supervised learning, that's a different thing. A model that can basically pay attention to what the most important things are in a giant data set using this new GPU technology that was really emergent. So kind of largely NVIDIA chipset-based architectures. This happened at the same time that supercomputers basically took off. So like, you know, um, the exponential nature of it has gone from like the fastest supercomputer in the world seven years ago was about maybe 30 petaflops, our max, and now it's a thousand, mm -hmm. you know, the parallelization and ability to do this has meant that you've had that style. That was actually one of the foundations of OpenAI, which was that they realized that you could apply large amounts of compute to classical academic literature, not classic, relatively new, to build larger and larger models, which is why we had this big model thing, you know, large language models are LLMs. But the big technology is like a human, it's like, you understand the connections between things and you try and figure out what's the latent spaces to compress it down. A latent space is like a principle. It's like a hidden layer of meaning of what a cup is. The various uses, it can be a world cup, it can be a cup on the table, it can be cup your hands, you know? And it compresses it down into these overlapping kind of latent spaces by moving information back and forth very quickly across large amounts of chips um, to figure these out and uh, disaggregate them. That, Again, it's just very similar to what my son had to do, what we do, what we learn, you know, as we learned, as you came and you kind of understood the tech industry, you learn all these kind of principle-based analyses. And it's kind of amazing that we've got that. And this has led to a big breakthrough in a lot of fields as they've applied this more architecture, not only to language, but image to other things. And I was like, wait, you can kind of use the same architecture for everything. Isn't that a bit crazy? You know, and then apply more and more. Over the last few years, you've seen that go exponential as you've gone from like, 
couple of billion parameters to GPT-3 that's 175 billion parameters and things like Palm that's 540 billion parameters, the latest language models there. But you started to see some interesting things over the last period, which is that um, first thing was the Chinchilla scaling paper from DeepMind, which basically said that a lot of these big models weren't trained enough. They didn't think enough. Like you trained it on the whole data set once or twice, but you should have trained it five times as long to get something efficient, which meant that GPT-3 at 175 billion parameters, you could get equivalent from, I believe, 60 billion parameters if you trained it more on the 60. Yeah. The actual location of that is actually better data. So a lot of the data that we trained these models on wasn't actually that great. And um, also what we did was we just trained single modality models. So language, text, other things. One of the breakthroughs we had, this was Catherine Krauss and our lead coders, kind of uh, her nickname is Rivers Have Wings. Her name is on top of all the collabs things was um, basically clip condition models or merging together models of different modalities. Now, the most uh, famous example of that recently was the Gatto paper by DeepMind where they create a 1.3 billion parameter model that can just about everything by taking loads of large models and squishing them all together. And then it can play Lego and chess and all that kind of stuff. In language model, this is the big breakthrough that led to DALI and Imogen and other things. And one of the first ones was Catherine CC12M condition model. So CC12M is just 12 million images and it was compressed and merged kind of the language clip model, the discriminator with a generator model together. Then that kind of led to kind of mid-journeys basis and a bunch of others. But what's happening now is we're taking these generator models, these language models, and merging them together. And people are doing that across a range of different modalities. So Google did that with a pure language model in T5XL, which was 11 billion parameter model, along with an image model, and created Imogen. And Imogen can create wonderfully accurate things. Of course, we can't access it because they're a bit worried, which is something we can talk about later. Um, but there's a variety of different architectures that now allow this because it's so cool that people are excited to take it forward. But all of these represent a similar structure to that which we have in the brain, which is there's just too much information to store here. So we can press it down to this latent space understanding. Um, and that's what we explore. When we poke it with prompt, we explore the latent spaces and it gives images because it understands the relationship between labels and pixels, which is crazy, but it works. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you talked about Prometheus Fire and uh, the ethics, like you know, being able to handle uh, this in a in an it, it, the importance of AI ethics here. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so AI ethics, you know, it's really interesting because AI ethicists are treated really badly, and it's not on. You know, like um, you've seen how big companies build up ethics departments, and then like there have been a lot of scandals around the ethicists spoke out and they got fired and they got treated terribly, you know, at the same time, kind of this group influences the discord with a very particular type of approach, which is, you know, almost that which leads to a harmful act is in itself harmful. You know, it's similar in a way to the logic and I'm not comparing this directly. That means that Islamic scholars in Saudi Arabia say that women can't drive because they'll do bad things. So they're clearly assets. So it's called blocking the means, Sadal Dalai which means obviously they shouldn't be able to allow to drive. It's similar to the Jewish concept of Trumra, or kind of, again, the gating of actions. Ultra-Orthodox, as it were. That's what happens when you make decisions under uncertainty. So there's two types of decision-making. One is decision-making under risk, when you know the variable outcomes, and you do an expected utility calculation. And that's when things are stable. When you have technology as powerful as this, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. There's a million things that can happen. Like people ask me, what do you expect to be made out of stable diffusion? I'm like, I don't know. 
it's a primitive, you know, that people use in unexpected ways when it goes out like this. So when you're doing decision-making under uncertainty, which is like what we did under COVID and things like that, you know, or when companies cut back their staff, when they should probably be growing it sometimes and things like that, you change something called regret minimax. You minimize for maximum regret. And companies, minimizing for maximum regret is political PR and other blowback. And it's calculations of what could go wrong versus what could go right. Because companies are not incentivized to put technology out there, except for when it is around the bottom line. And so they're incentivized to instead to keep it internal. So when you look at the LLM kind of code of ethics that was released by Cohere, AI21, and OpenAI, it basically says that all of these models should be closed forever because they're too dangerous for normal people to have. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of the concentration of these models, well, basically in California um, and London in DeepMind, it's basically then comes down to them because nobody else can train the models. Like India's fastest supercomputer is 160 A100s. We've got 4,000 as a private company for our core class that we've got access to many more. You know, like that's crazy. India is a country of 1.6 billion people, but they can't train these models. They have to rely on others to have that technology transfer. Part of it is because it is so new and part of it is because just access to resources, knowledge, and data. Okay. Again, structured data. So the entire discussion has been focused on what could go wrong versus what could go right. And also around kind of a very Western secularized viewpoint, as opposed to some of the more broad viewpoints, which can vary from utilitarian to more kind of an Islamic law, Maslaha, which is public interest and other things and different moral frameworks. Because like if you bring technology to third world countries, it can be used for ill, you know, like we've seen even in certain uh, dictatorships, computer vision technology is being used to round up people and jail them. Does that mean we should put computer vision technology out there? No. You know, this image technology is out there and people said, what if you make it open source, bad guys will get them. The reality is the bad guys have thousands and thousands of A100s and supercomputers and they're making these models to influence elections. So it's a complex topic that unfortunately has kind of always been self-appointed. And the technology is so powerful that we have to ask ourselves a question, like who makes the decisions on this? Because it's like the infrastructure for the future that obviously we will use everywhere. But imagine if all the roads were gated and controlled by private corporations. That doesn't feel right, does it? So uh, one, one way that I think stable diffusions were very different from a lot of the predecessors is it's open source, right? You can download it, it's a two gigabyte file. You know, you can get it from like Hugging Face, like right now and run it on your laptop, I have. Um, and and there was some level of controversy because previously a lot of these were, like you said, you know, were, you know, you could only go through it uh, to the companies. And I think there's kind of a parallel there between closed and open source. Or uh, since I kind of come from the world of crypto, the power of kind of decentralization and you know having everybody have access and stake in something as opposed to a centralized figure. So there's kind of like a lot of spiritual parallels. And I'm curious, what made you come to the decision to be like, okay, we're going to actually open source this and put this out there? Well, they didn't give us access to the technology to save lives for COVID-19, right? And so if they're not going to give us access for that, what are they going to give us access to? Like, you know, again, I applaud OpenAI for their brand-breaking work, and they're a bunch of amazing individuals um, and teams. But they banned the word Ukraine from DALI 2, and they banned the use in Ukraine. I find that disgusting, frankly. You know, like, look at all the tech for Ukraine things, and yet they were allowed to get away with that. Why did they do it? For corporate reasons, right? And so what can you do against that? Their diversity filter, again, they're doing their best and they did a lot of amazing work around t -tuping. And again, this is all with the best intentions. 
But then like you enter the word sumo wrestler and then it randomly allocates non-gendered words, a gender and a race. So you get a female Indian sumo wrestler. Like, you know, maybe RT, you want to do that one day, but it's like, it's a bit straight. It's so paternalistic that it's ridiculous. And again, I'm not a libertarian, right? But my take is that this technology needs to go out there to the world because it is like that to broaden the discussion, to help combat and build an immune system against bad actors who will use this for evil. And they have this technology already, you know, at much more advanced stages, but then also because it can be used to uplift people. Like the net benefit of being able to create versus consume is astonishing, you know? And why should it be controlled? Because if we kept it the way it was, the people who had Dali 2 had superpowers, and then there's everyone else who didn't. So that digital divide would only have grown. And I realized that not only was there a fantastic business model, you know, to be self-sustaining by taking this technology to other countries and uplifting them effectively, but it would win in the end. Because what would happen is this, over the next five years, everyone would have made their models closed. And that could have been forever, but most likely in five years, the first person would have defected open and then everyone would have followed, just like databases and servers. It's like crypto. You have your closed things and they're fine. Coinbase is fine, but you can also use Uniswap. Mm -hmm. There needs to be options. And guess what? Uniswap makes more money now probably than Coinbase, right? It's like, there are always other options, but there have to be options because otherwise you don't have that creation of markets and things like that. Because again, will all the highways of AI in the world be run by OpenAI and Google and Microsoft to augment our potential? Hopefully not. But if you want to use them, you should be able to. So your take here really comes from the, the technology is interesting. It could have really deep, meaningful impact. The, the part where, you know, the, the rub here is that you have these few gatekeepers who get to control uh, what, who can use the technology and how, and that's the part that you take offense with. I take offense. I think it's wrong. I also think it's bad business because it's not a sustainable business to rely on models when anyone could open source at any point. The only two sustainable modes here are actually content and scale. So content, all of this content in the world, the structured data sets will be living. So I call it a generative search engine. You know, I've taken the internet, compressed it, and you can create any image from that. You know, uh, that's amazing, right? I think that everyone should have that access. And I have this vision of an intelligent internet where every single individual, company, country, and culture has their own generative search engines that are interacting with each other to bring the most important information that will change things as appropriate to that individual. That doesn't exist in the closed source environment, right? Because you can never take the model and adapt it. You can never experiment with it. You'll not cut that spark. Like the energy that I feel right now is the same as when I entered crypto in kind of 2012, 2013. People are experimenting and they're doing all this stuff. They don't care about bootstrapping economic incentives because you finally got a primitive, a technology that can deliver value from day one. So I think that's the other part of it. Like this technology is too amazing to be kept from people. And as it goes out, things like diversity, our training set is based on a snapshot of the internet. It is Western biased and it is biased and all these things. Our model card fully lists it, you know, working with a variety of ethicists and others. And it says, come and help make it better. Because if it's just a dozen people working on this technology and no one else has access to it, it'll never get better. Instead, it'll be afflicted by these company corporate concerns. Whereas now, a million new machine learning developers will emerge because they will install this on their laptop and be able to run it and they'll experiment. That's the promise of open source. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the more compelling, one of the most compelling arguments 
you make is that uh, the decisions around ethics here shouldn't be left to a few people who live within a 20, 30 mile radius of here or within a 20, 30 mile radius of you. And for example, maybe, you know, the, the people of India should have their own thousands of years of history influences or other parts of the world should have their own history influences. And that idea of not imposing what we call the weird uh, in terms of the Western model of ethics on the world, I think that is very compelling. Yeah. And I think, you know, the only way to that is to diffuse this technology, right? So it's to put it out there. And it's about individual responsibility and agency. I'd say those are the two other things. So one of the nice things about this is that 1% of people are creative or believe that everyone is creative. Everyone is an artist, right? And so this agency model shouldn't be kept from people. But at the same time, you need to broaden the discussion to have a variety of different viewpoints. So like I'm a member of AI and faith.org, and I found a number of things there, you know, you need to bring these stories and these discussions into it because we're in this weird thing again, whereby AI ethicists work super hard and they're super well-meaning and they're treated so badly, yet they influence this giant corporations who treat them badly and who don't step out. So people want to release it there. The AI ethicists want the technology to be out there in an appropriate way, but no, everyone's talking past each other, you know? And it's the weirdest, strangest kind of game theoretic mess and misequilibrium that you ever see. Whereas let's broaden the voices, let's see what the technology does. If there's bad things that emerge, let's build countermeasures as a community to that. Because the bad things won't emerge in the public, right? They will emerge in the darkness because they're bad. They're unethical and moral and unlawful, shall we say. The good will be massive. And I'm not taking this from a purely utilitarian perspective. I generally believe this is one of the biggest advances in communication because a picture is worth a thousand words. So you can just do a cancellation. But you know what I mean? It's like anyone can create anything soon as they take this primitive and apply it to pipelines to just map the world. So maybe that's a good segue to talking about applications. I think all of our Twitter feeds and, you know, um, have been filled with images that we've seen from Stable Diffusion or DALI or, you know, obviously it's been the zeitgeist. Let's play this forward a few years. What do you think this leads to down the road in terms of prompt engineering, in terms of uh, applications? Where do you see this going to in a few years from now? So, you know, one of the interesting things about this is the role of the human. So again, the big models used to influence the humans and try to get you to buy ads. Now the most interesting thing is how the models interact with humans. So when you use the OpenAI API, you're not actually using GPT-3, this 175 billion parameter behemoth using Instruct GPT, which is 1.3 billion parameter model, uh, they learned how people use GPT-3 and then compressed it down by removing the excess neurons. This technology will get faster and faster and faster until it runs on the edge. And you'll be able to generate anything Ready Player One style in any resolution by a combination of these models working almost in a mixture of expert style, the most appropriate model for the most appropriate thing, and no model when it's not required. And that means you can build whole worlds, you can build PowerPoints dynamically. No more prompt engineering will be required because of the level of diffusion. Because when it's only a few entities working at this, the advances are relatively slow. When it is a million people working at this, it's like the homebrew computer club, but for AI distributed around the world. That's what's going to happen. And this is one of the things where we can support the whole ecosystem around this and just see what the innovation does. But I know what the innovation is going to result in. Ready Player One, dynamic creation of anything, just with kind of your words and with human interfaces. Because you should have to say, like, right now, you know, if you put exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, and the prompt, it waits it more. No, you should be able to wait the prompts dynamically, and the system should be able to understand your needs and how you wait the prompts dynamically. 
You know, again, we should be able to kill the scourge of PowerPoint by combining a Wait, model. what does it mean? What does it mean to kill the scourge of uh, PowerPoint? Say, look, I'm running into a meeting. I want to create a presentation about guacamole trends in Nicaragua. I don't know. You shouldn't have to like drag and click and, you know, do that. It should be done dynamically. Because if you've got an image model, a code model, a language model, that's all you kind of need combined with large design sets that we've been acquiring as well. You know? So these types of things is the ability to communicate through multiple mediums. I think within five years, it will be an amazing step change because anyone will be able to communicate across any medium and any language, if we're correct. Because part of our plan is to do these models across modalities for every country, culture, and race and build communities that create those data sets with our education work and others. We'll outline more of that kind of plan. But once you get that, you have models that talk to each other in their little computer language, right? Um, and like I said, you have the different modalities. You know what's an impactful image. Like one of the things we actually did with this is one of the first versions of the model that was good enough, we were like, wow, that's good. So we created a bot and then we invited in like 500 testers that rated the outputs. And so it rated the outputs of this model for what was aesthetically pleasing. Uh, we released that open source, like many of our data sets, the aesthetic captures, I think it was 240,000 of them. So the prompts and the aesthetic things. Then we used those to crawl through our 2 billion images and find what was aesthetic using a clip model on 600 million images. And we did the next stage of learning on that. So this is one of the reasons stable diffusion is very aesthetic because it understands what aesthetic is from this human and the thing. As we build more and more models and we see the scale and how humans interact with it, we'll be able to understand what all sorts of other things are as well. And that will mean the machines will understand us better and then they can extend us better. So like, for me, this is largely about communication. And again, that piece of information that changes day and us being able to communicate that better. This is also why they're dangerous on the other side, you know, if they're used to sell more ads and things, but you know. It's immune system. I used to work in tech, by the way. Uh, but I think <laughs> the role of humans is quite interesting. Um, in, last week, there was this press piece about uh, a piece of uh, AI generated winning uh, a paint in art contest of some sort. Uh, I think it was a, a, like a woman starring at a space opera. And, mm. and yeah. I think there is a real question about what does it mean in the world of art, in the world of poetry, and what is the role of a human being well, when you can maybe have, uh, you know, a terminal prompt do a lot of the work for you. How do you think about that in terms of what does it mean for human skill, creativity and accomplishment? Yeah, so, you know, like, um, it's a very interesting thing because like I said, these models are designed to be aesthetic and they're trained on humanity in a way, or at least the humanity that's captured in the internet, which is not reflective. And again, we'll change that with the mechanism that we're doing. So it understands what's pretty, what's beautiful, maybe even better than a human can. And that's only going to get better and better. So computers will outperform humans in residence, which is kind of crazy. And this is one of the reasons these models have had that leap in human level performance and narrow fields using this transformer architecture that can understand these hidden meanings or these hidden layers of meaning. So you should, assume, you should basically say that from an aesthetic point of view, AI enhanced or generated imagery will be better. I mean, it's like the iPhone camera, right? Like the iPhone camera uses advanced AI to do better pictures than you could do now with a manual kind of shutter. Maybe for a super expert, but for the vast majority of people, iPhone 14 Pro, right? I'm going to get one. I'm going to make nice pictures, right? Um, it's so a dynamic island that's older for me. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. 
So you've kind of got that kind of thing. Um, so you should see that. But then what is the role of an artist? This is a really interesting one, right? Like if you're just doing art to create artwork for people, there's going to be a million, a hundred million new artists because anyone can become an artist. Just like Excel means everyone can be an accountant. No, accountants are still, still there, right? Photography means that there are no photographers. No, photographers still exist. But it's what do you mean to be an artist? Like, are you doing an artist for the aesthetic pleasure and the output? That's fine. Because that's contained within you and your context. And you're doing it for the art of creation. You might have to change to being a prompt engineer to make the ends meet, but we're going to create all new industries for this. Are you being an artist to tell your story? That's about community. That's similar to Web3, right? <clears throat> and NFTs. NFTs are the shortest way to share in the story. So Spotify, a million listens, you've got $2,000. Sell your NFTs to 10,000 people for $10 each, you've got $100,000. You should do that instead. You should build a community and you should use this just like some of the AI artists that you see and all my daughter could be the best artist in the world and let her dad retire, but she won't, you know, but that's another story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the final thing is you're an artist for hire, right? Building stuff that's kind of boring, doing illustrations to support your other work again. Throw yourself into this industry because people will be such high demand for it, just like they were in Web3. Like for me, this is another moment like Web3 and it'll generate even more economic value because we can always bring Web3 elements into it, but the reality is it's generating value from day one, you know? So you mentioned prompt engineering, which is I think really, really interesting. So uh, could you explain what prompt engineering is for folks who maybe, you know, not who haven't actually played with Dali or Stable Diffusion right now and how you see that evolving? Yeah, so, you know, just like humans, you have to instruct them in certain ways. You have to instruct these models in certain ways, right? So again, like we're having trouble instructing our daughters because they got big personalities, but we're figuring out how to control them, right? Similarly, <laughs> like with a model. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think something, something about prompt engineering, which is very similar to talking to a child, where you kind of poke at the system and you get a response back and you're like, it kind of gives you one small piece of the puzzle. Then you poke again and poke again and then... You're kind of like trying to manipulate something which you don't totally understand, but you can sort of yeah. like see the contours off. Um, and it's actually not, you know, I think there are definitely some similarities to interacting with a child where you're trying to understand their cognitive model of the universe. Their priors and their worldview. Mm -hmm. And you kind yeah. of have to build on that and like and and course correct or direct them in a way that is like a fairly good middle ground, at least with the child. Yeah, you're trying to understand the latent spaces and the principles that they've built, right? So this is kind of the learning. So it is exactly like that. These models are the first of a bunch because they're just like one part of the brain. Again, if they kind of do it, there's going to be multiple parts of the brain with multiple types of model. And maybe this is the real way to align AGI. That's a quite complex discussion. Front engineering is where, you, again, you start and you iterate. And so what these models actually do, one of the other ways to think about them is they start with noise and they denoise. So you know when you go enhance, 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 enhance. So there's something called a seed, which is like a bit of random noise that starts it, or you can start with an initial image, even a sketch. Because we now have an image to image where you can do a sketch and create an entire dinosaur from that in a second, which is kind of cool. The kids will love it next week when we drop that in Dream Studio and other things. You can do it on your iPad, right? Um, so the way that it works is you kind of denoise, 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 and you get to that thing in just a few seconds, because it takes four seconds, and you're like, that's not quite what I wanted. You know, maybe I need to work the word art station to it. You're like, what's art station? Art station is a website which has lots of great art, you know? And so the machine has learned that art station means good art. Similarly, you can use the word masterpiece and it generally gets better with masterpiece. Trending, it generally gets better because trending images are better. So there are all these little tricks. Like another one is Unreal Engine, if you want 3D. 
because then it has Unreal Engine like render type things. Because again, it's what the words are connected to that. So a lot of prompt engineering is introducing different artists, art styles, and all these kind of things that guide it to like, oh, it's a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that to get the effect that you want. So sometimes they're like 18, like seven lines long, you know, these kind of things, because people are just trying to fiddle with these parameters. But that's all crude model, because like I said, like, you know, in a week or so, we'll introduce prompt waiting where you can wait the different prompts, or you can take a prompt out of it negatively. Like, you know, for those who watch Neon Genesis Evangelion, you've got Asuka, which is a character there, but she's also a WWE wrestler. So if you type in Asuka, you get a mixture of the two. So you want to say Asuka? I might, uh, uh, might know this. I'm How a, much did you pay, Matt, to say yeah. this? Uh, uh, I'm a huge... I don't know if you see the WWE title belt behind. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you do it the other way. <laughs> you do it the other way, then you add Asuka and you minus Neon Genesis Evangelion then. So I want to be on the WWE side, right? Shout out to uh, uh, Asuka right here. I, I think there's also something, it, it's kind of like similar to the early days of search, where if you remember you're playing with Google, maybe like or even today, you would realize that, oh, you can add these prompts or you can add a little modifier and you realize, well, you know, Wikipedia generally has good information and how to maybe remove. And it's a little bit of understanding the latent space uh, as you figure out. Uh, I'm tempted to ask, uh, you know, what were some of the most, uh, surprising prompts that you have seen? Surprising prompts that I have seen, goodness. Um, one of the most surprising things is you can make up names and they're consistent and coherent. Wait, so, what does that mean? Give me an example. We have an artist called Shog Janet, um, which is completely made up. And if you just add that to every prompt, it's a consistent artistic style that's quite unique. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Help explain how that works. What is happening inside the machine to make that happen? So what happens is that like when you have words, like when Dali had it, uh, Dali has a restriction on real world humans. And so one of the things that people did, instead of saying Obama, they'd say Obama, right? And so when it looks at the word in the latent space and kind of applies it there and tokenizes it, it's got a similarity kind of cosine. So Obama is similarly close to Obama that it kind of attaches to the word cloud of similarity. And so it would generate a varmint. Uh, similarly, Shog Janet just pokes a part of the latent space that's kind of between word clouds almost. Because Shog is not a word, kind of J-A-A-N-I-T is not really a word combined. And somehow there's like this, you can think of it like a giant electron cloud with little electrons and vast expanses between. We're only exploring these little tiny dots that we know of, but there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff around it. So if you enter random words in, you can actually get coherent results which is kind of crazy because it picks from various parts of the cloud. And that makes you realize that even though you've taken 100,000 gigabytes of data and compressed it to two gigabytes, God, every time I say that, I sound like, you know, freaking Pied Piper from Silicon Valley. Uh, like Backman. There's going to be a, uh, a big joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what we got then is, um, despite the fact it's two gigabytes, you can actually compress it more because there's a lot of extra information in there. And that's, again, insane and crazy. So that's one of the things that surprised me the most about this. Um, I think, you know, the other thing was like certain weightings as well of individual kind of individual prompts. Like if you say Mona Lisa, there's so much Mona Lisa in there that it's hard to drive it away from the classical Mona Lisa. You have to try really hard and you're up weighting and down weighting. Understanding how different weightings of different words affect things because some people are persistent. And some people aren't when you're trying to mash together styles and things like that. 
Um, part of that is also the data set. Is it deduped or is it isn't and kind of stuff like that. But yeah, I think those are probably the two most impressive things or the most surprising things. Aside from, you know, when you find a magical keyword like Makato Shinkai, uh, who did the Japanese kind of movies, Your Name, which is a very beautiful movie if you want to kind of see it. Like, you see, it just... It's also, I think that or all the Studio Ghibli style is like very, very good because it's digital art. There's yeah. a huge online community. It's, yeah. yeah, It's just very like lovely. Maybe it's because I love anime, you know, but still it's like you see certain things and you build up these like reservoirs of like concepts, styles, words, and things like that that can just make such an impact on the overall compositional quality. Here's an interesting question. So I, I talked to a lot of people about GitHub Copilot and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that's been like somewhat successful in terms of helping programmers code. Same with the Amjad and Replit, right? You know, you have the pair programming. Yeah. yeah. And I'm curious about, and I think when I talk to coders who use GitHub Copilot, like there's a certain different skill set in understanding the latent space and make it work for you. So who do you think, what do you think are the skills required to get good at prompt engineering? And who are the kind of people who are going to be good at this? Because there's slightly I different skills in classic engineering. Yeah. I, ooh, are you there? Yeah, there we go. It's working. Well, so, yeah, I think the skills required to be a good prompt engineer are actually engineering tinkering skills, right? So, like, a lot of code is, code is no longer first principles. Like, when I was a coder 20 years ago, I was doing voice over IP code in my gap year. You know, we did a lot of assembly level kind of stuff. You don't do that anymore. You got libraries on top of libraries and you stack overflow, right? That didn't exist in my day. GitHub didn't exist. God, I feel old now, right? Anyway, um, it's, it's kind of this iterative loop, right? Now, where you're kind of just experimenting and twinking. And again, it's this prompt engineering thing where you take it and you've got a first thing and then you move away from it by adjusting, 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 adjusting. So you do your initial code, and you adjust, 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 fine tune. That type of mentality is the best one here. And also where you start from a solid base and you move. So the people who are most disappointed by this model are the ones who say, I want to have an aardvark drinking a tequila while riding an elephant into the sunset on Cairo. And you're like, is that in the training data set? No. <laughs> so it's not going to be able to do that unless you use a language model embedded thing that can understand that and then does some magic focus stuff. But that's not what this model is. This is a tiny model, right? So people who start with something like, you know, Robin Williams's Legolas. And then they say, as a watercolor painting by Monet and Banksy, iridescent. You know, they start iterating are the people who tend to get the most out of this. Similar for kind of Copilot and things like that. If you expect to write whole lines of code, well, if you're a crap coder, it's probably going to be better than you. But, you know, it's like the way it works is that you have to view it as not a full pair programmer, but an assistant that can give you inspiration for what to do. There was like a shortcut to Stack Overflow initially, and then it goes beyond that. Like we're building pair programming systems um, using contrastive learning that will be full pair programmers. And again, using lots of humans and uh, partnering with certain entities that we will announce um, very soon. But that's a more complicated thing to do, you know? Um, and it requires a lot of data and a lot of how humans interact with the code as opposed to the code itself. Now, this is going to be a fun question. So when you think about what it's going to take to make this 10x better or 10x faster or pick a number, what's going to be the next step level? Is it bounded by availability of compute? Mm. You know, does it mean like, you know, more data centers, more time on Amazon or Google or Microsoft's cloud? Is it about finding efficient ways to compress these models? Uh, what do you think is the door that needs to be opened to unlock the next step level function of change here? 
I think it's just a variety of different modalities and people using it across contexts. So again, when you start combining models of different types, the latent spaces overlap and you have massive breakthroughs. Once you start seeing how people interact with models, you can compress them down because you can remove the unnecessary parts of that by reinforcement learning and kind of other modalities. This is why, like I said, a lot of the AI companies are focused on artificial general intelligence, uh, one model to rule them all. I don't care about that. I care about building the foundation to unlock humanity's potential, right? And the way that you'll do that is in models that people can use, you know, models that people can customize and models that people can extend. Uh, I think that where we missed a step with the GPT-NEO models was that we didn't coordinate the ecosystem. So we know that 25 million people are downloaded and we don't know who has. One of the twin things, so we released an ethical use model, uh, OpenRail, Creative ML for this, which says that you must use it for ethical use and you must also show it to other people as well. If you're redistributing this. Yeah, ethical use mean here exactly? Ethical use is a bit fuzzy, but it's basically don't break the law and don't be a douche. Um, so there are other parameters there, but it's mostly kind of around the legal side of things. Because ethics varies. Like, you know, one of the problems that we had in our beta is because this was a generalized test. If you typed in kind of beautiful painting of a lady, a lot of beautiful paintings of ladies are nudes, you know, from the archives. So it'd be like, ladies are nudes, you know? Again, it's a very straightforward, simplistic model. So one of the things we did was include a classifier that turned that off by default. But if you're in France and you don't mind that, if you're an artist that don't mind that, you can remove that and adjust it. But again, the ethical use kind of varies and it's a local context specific one, which basically says, don't do stuff that's illegal, you know? And also show this to people so they're minded to say, it's up to you what you use it for. But again, don't transgress the bounds of an acceptable society, especially when imposing this on others. Because there's this one thing of like, you're in your own room doing whatever. Society is all about your interactions with other people. And these models extend your ability to reach other people. What we do is technology act like that, actually. And in the one way, it's like an amplifier. So what's happened with the internet is that some of the loudest voices have become the most powerful and created this division. A lot of people are left behind because they can't access this amplifier technology. Now, one of the things is, does this goes to everyone? And you have to be reminded, this is powerful technology that you should use in an appropriate way. So the license is a variant of the open source license that we worked on with Hugging Face and others. Um, one of the fun things about it though, is that because you have to include it, we can actually tell who's using stable diffusion or not. So we're going to have a powerful stable diffusion page that's like everyone, even if they don't use our API. Um, and part of that's going to help us coordinate the community better and coordinate the models better so we can learn better from them to build better open source benchmark models. So let's, cool. I want to get like something very concrete because, uh, you know, Git, one of the things I like about GitHub Copilot, just to go back to that, is when you use it, you immediately go like, oh, I see why I use this. It's super, mm -hmm. you know, it helps me write code. It helps me be a better coder when it works. Um, let's say we fast forward a year or two. A lot of the images that are coming are super fun. What do you think are practical applications, applications that anybody listening here would be like, oh, I can imagine myself using that. Well, for a start, people use Snapchat and TikTok because they have an element of creativity combined with consumption. People will create creative social networks because creation is so much fun and, you know, they'll share their communication. I'd say that's one. Number two, video games are a $175 billion sector, right? Being able to customize and create anything you can imagine in video game worlds and this metaverse. People talk about the metaverse, but then what is the AI in the metaverse? Is it the metaverse of meta? where there's no genitals or legs, you know? Uh, or is it one which is more dynamic, where you can create anything and it's open as the basis? I think it's probably going to be the latter. I think you'll use this for your metaverse type things. I think you'll use this for your creation type things. And when but, you say you use this in a metaverse, the way I'm picturing it off the top of my head 
is instead of an artist, you know, uh, using some 3D tools, generating the landscape and the world you live in, using AI as an example. And, and prompts. And prompts uh, or some sort of like manifestation of a text prompt to basically generate the world around you. Is that like maybe like one manifestation of how this plays out? Yeah. So, you know, we have architecture models that build 3D kind of entities and you will have a variety of different things around this, you know, so you'll be able to build like a movie set. And like we partner with Eros in India, for example, for the Bollywood data sets. So you'll be able to create a movie set and then say, I want Shah Rukh Khan there and I want to meet the Bachchan there, you know, I want them to dance and you'll be able to do things like that. So, and again, it's this ready player. That's one thing I've noticed with stable diffusion, uh, you know, we come from India and the data set is just so rich. Like it, it's, it, it's so much more culturally diverse and rich than anything else I've used. And it just, it blows you away because we think we have a very narrow cultural context. And then you realize that that's not true. Like, you know, you're able to like actually look at this and say, okay, Shah Rukh Khan in this setting, in this place, and it gets it, which is amazing. Yeah. And it gets it in a one shot way, but it's actually going to be used in a multi shot way to do compositional analysis. So today we had a group out of Japan create Japan diffusion because if you use the word salary man in a Western context, you'll get like someone getting a salary as opposed to a very depressed Japanese individual, you know? And so they created a Japanese language encoder and trained it. And in a couple of days, now it's a Japanese model. But what's going to happen is that every country, a culture company will have their own little tiny models that they're their own search engines that they use internally and then externally. And this is the real use of it. Can you compress information into knowledge? And then can you provide it in the appropriate context? So it's almost like wisdom that you output to create rich new experiences. You can use that to have customized brands. You know, you can use that to have customized experiences. You can use it to create architecture. You know, you can use it to create memes like my mom does saying, Emad, why don't you call me more often? You know, every day it's a new one using stable diffusion. Um, so this is kind of <laughs> wait, does she really do that? Like, what is it? Wh how do they look like? It's mostly like sad cats and things like that. And then she just sticks. It's Call your mom, Emma. Call your mom. I know. I'm startup found I've been busy. Okay, <laughs> I'll do better. Sorry, I'm really Emma. curious to see what comes out of stable diffusion for like Emma. Please call me. Like, yeah. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> this is the guilt tripping. Guilt tripping. But no, I mean, like the reality is that image is going to be solved in a year or two. Like it's a solved problem that will be commoditized. And this is again a reason why you don't build a private model for this, because the marginal compression will be huge, right? Unless you do something like we're doing, which is partnering with some of the biggest content providers in the world to take their vast assets and turn them intelligent and interactive. That's where a kind of moat is, you know, fine tying that. And then it's about scale. Scaling these models is hard as well. So the systems that you have there will be any type of image database compressed and then made interactive. And again, that will be used in everything from PowerPoint, being able to put whatever piece of art is. Right now, there's a Photoshop plugin that was released yesterday by a community member who was senior at Photoshop and now taking a bit of a break. So you can import this directly into Photoshop. You'll find this everywhere. Anywhere that you need to have a word to image, you'll find this. But then again, this is the first of multiple models, code models, language models, video models, audio models we released later this month that allow you to express yourself in any way by controlling the creation of an output. And that's or of humanity, like the way we communicate and the bandwidth we have for that. We've just been very limited by the tools that we have. You talked about uh, interactive models and uh, is it interactive from the sense of like prompt output or did you mean something else? 
So I think there's two elements to this. One is human in the loop, right? Where again, you have prompt output, prompt output, and we'll head towards real time in these model generations, you know, across modalities and across these things, especially as we optimize for the hardware. The second part of this is actual customizable models, being able to take what you do and kind of input it. So like, um, you know, one of the things we have is the ability right now, textual inversion to take an image and get a prompt out of it and use that to fine tune the models. So you add a few images and then the models gets really good at those images as well. So if you look at the diffusers library, that's the hacking face that's already been implemented and we'll implement that more widely across the suite of different things. It's a great topic because, you know, there's I think one growing question of our prompts IP, you know, our prompts something that artists safeguard and mm -hmm. keep secret and, you know, and, um, and it's interesting because when you have something like that, you know, there's question of, okay, what is the prompt exactly? And maybe you can look at any image and get the source code out of it. Yeah. So the way that I view it is almost like the base model, the benchmark model, as we call it, is like a hashed entity. It's really strange, right? Because like imagine nouns style, for example. So the, can I assume the listeners know a bit about crypto or? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, trust yeah. me, they do. Uh, and for folks, you know, this is nouns style, uh, which if you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Uh, they do some amazing work, uh, headed by, I think, Punk4156 on Twitter and yeah. a few others. Really, really interesting, groundbreaking crypto project. Yeah, so nouns style is like embedded on the blockchain pixel art, like little shark heads or whatever, right? And they raise money every single day and they've got this treasury that they do fun things with. With the same embedding in a blockchain, with this verifiable two gigabyte file, you can create a gigantic masterpiece of any space, just with a few words, right? And so think about the value of that if you mix and match them. You could create noun stable DAO, you know, or something like that. So it becomes interesting because you have a universal compression engine one way or another. If you edit the model, then the hash doesn't match anymore, but it becomes a customizable model. But a lot of what's happened with AI artists and the NFT scene, and a lot of them are kind of involved in what we do, is that some of them give away their prompts and some of them guard them religiously. And they're like, ha, no, it's our style. But what's going to happen is that people are going to move to having their own models. And again, this is the thing that you are to kind of like, sometimes people will just use the model as is, as this blog, and some people will have their own custom model that constantly improves. And we've seen that with the language models and other things. If you look at personal.ai, or Alethia.ai and others, they have fine-tunable models um, kind of in the more crypto space. Um, I want to ask you about India. I know it's a, it's a country and a people that I think you're very interested in when it comes to the future of AI. Uh, how do you see India's role in AI? So look, India has the second most AI engineers in the world, but barely any of them do these types of models. It's more kind of classical. So they're kind of built and kind of go there. But India has the ideal substrate for implementing this. So there's Adhar in India stack, where somehow, I still don't know how, 94% of the country got kind of <laughs> enrolled in a system. Again, it's amazing kind of thing. I'm from Bangladesh myself. I kind of view them all as a thing, but I view India as the lead that can hopefully bring the other countries forward. So I look at these things, I look at kind of our partnerships with Eros and others, and I'm like, why don't we take these AI models to India and create millions of new coders? Because if they take this technology and they combine it with identity, identity plus AI, is one of the most powerful things in the world. Because identity is like your common context and this AI can create resonance across it. So the systems that you can build at an Indian level across all the cultures and dynamism of the country, India should have them and it should have them now. It shouldn't wait like 15 years because there's more than enough resource, financial, intellectual, and social to be able to have that to bring it forward. So people communicate better because a lot of the problems in India are around communication, you know, around kind of reach. And this goes back to our education project as well. Because 
every Indian child, every Bangladeshi child, Pakistani, every child in the world should have access to education through an AI system that teaches them and learns from them. And that is the ideal data set to train these models at a national level and a cultural and country level, you know? And that's what I want to do with emerging markets. I'm like, emerging markets and creativity are the best places for this. Like I'm working with some of the largest brands in the world to turn their static content intelligent. But really, there's this massive opportunity to build a brand new intelligent internet infrastructure for these countries. They get right information to the people when they need them. And it gets rid of that tail where people are being left behind and close to the digital divide. You can jump from zero to freaking foundation models in no time. And as you see how they interact with it, you make them efficient and work at the edge as opposed to building hundreds of billions of parameters that no one will use apart from the rich. Yeah. Got it. You had also mentioned uh, working with governments uh, somewhere. What, what does that mean? I mean, I, I totally get like an era style, like data models, brands, very fun use cases there. What does it mean to work with the government? So like Indirects, for example, deserves its own foundation models at a national level. So right now you have an English foundation model of like a GPT or something like that. But what is the foundation model you can use that encapsulates Indian culture and Indian context? It doesn't exist. What is the Malawian model? What is the Nigerian model? Every country needs to have its own one because no one can define the data set for that other than the people. And these things need to be open uh, from a data perspective and a model perspective and made available to everyone in the country because it is infrastructure for the future. You can take that and extend it to your own commonality. But again, think about it in terms of this is a primitive. This is like a layer one. This is a benchmark that you then build upon. You upgrade the base and then you can build better and better models. But that technological diffusion should happen in parallel because every country can create these models um, and they should. And again, that's where we come in as a company, building these models for individual countries, building them for companies, and then enabling individuals to build their own. Because we do all the hard work of taking supercomputers and squishing it down hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And then it costs you a few thousand to train your own, you know, a few hundred thousand to train a country model or a few million. It's still fantastic value, right? Compared to what comes out. So stable diffusion is 150,000 A100 hours. The value it creates is immeasurable. Okay. There was like a million hours of failed experiments, but you know what I mean? Let's just focus on the Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do. Um, Ima, this has been like an amazing conversation. I think, you know, among all of this and, um, the thing that I think I resonate with the most is the idea of democratizing access to something, uh, which is your magical technology. Um, I think, you know, through our lives, I think we've seen open and decentralized win always over closed and locked in. And I think the idea of having something which you can download any laptop, whether you're here in Silicon Valley or, you know, you're, you're a kid in, uh, the mid, uh, in the middle of nowhere in India, I think that is powerful and transformative. So this is an amazing conversation. So I'm going to ask you one Final question, what is a prompt that you want everyone who listens to this to go out and try right away? Oh gosh, a prompt that everyone listens to this to go away and try right away. Man, I haven't gotten my favorite prompt. Let's be honest, the one that I, I always love doing is Robert De Niro's Gandalf, Watercolor Painting by Renoir. I just like that one. Another one that I really like doing is um, I just like, I just love the kind of actual landscape prompts, you know, when you're doing Constable and some of these classical artists, it's like so evocative and you can go around the world in just a few prompts. So one of the things that, uh, like Zadar Zodabridge has done to others is like, we'll be releasing soon the animation notebook where you can just do a whole list of prompts and it'll generate entire movies for you that move between one and the other seamlessly. Like, um, I'm really looking forward to people telling stories through their prompts, but 
I would say there's not one problem. Just go and experiment and have fun. You know, like we've got Dream Studio that has 200 free images, but this is powering so many amazing things from Wombo to Mid Journey's Beta, who done a fantastic job extending it to, you know, you'll see it in your top photo and other apps. Yeah, have fun. Explore. Have fun, tinker, explore. I think, you know, it's a heart of a lot of human accomplishment. Um, <laughs> Imad, uh, you're a fascinating person, work on something truly interesting. Uh, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for watching another episode of The Good Time Show. Please do subscribe to us here on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, anywhere at all. And we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What? Who sponsors? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, just, just... We don't have any sponsors, but please subscribe. Subscribe. Hit the bell. Mm -hmm. All Just like all the things. You know what to do.